Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I'm your host, Hillary Jones. So it is Midriff's one-year anniversary. One year ago, I was attending NAMM for the first time, which was a fabulous and wild experience, <laughs> just meeting so many rad people. Uh, when I returned, I posted the very first episode of Midriff, which was an interview with amazing drummer Rachel Bloomberg. So many memories. We're now on episode 26, and I am uh, just so psyched that you're all here listening to this, and thank you so much for your support. If you want to take a look back at previous episodes, the NAM episode was a doozy, and all of the interviews are compiled in episode three of Midriff. Um, but they're all good. They're all winners, I promise. Uh, so I'm, I'm really sad. I, I really, truly am that I didn't get to see folks at NAM this year, as I know many folks are, even though it is uh, horribly torturous in some ways. It is also fabulous and the people are great. Um, yeah. So I'm crossing my fingers for summer and, you know, we'll hopefully get there. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. I first want to thank Midriff's sponsors. Uh, first, we have Earthquaker Devices, perhaps you've heard of them. You've probably seen the internet raving about their new release, the Astral Destiny, which is a reverberating octave pedal. I think it's 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 a reverb and an octave. Those words are in there together. Put them in together in whatever combo you want. This is what you get. It is um, wild in the best way, and I'm very much looking forward to trying one soon. So here is the Earthquaker Devices YouTube comment of the week from YouTuber Matthew Hyatt who said of the astral destiny, quote, It's like living in a stream of light, breathing the essence of our being, while only knowing darkness, unquote. Sounds about right. Check it out, earthquakerdevices.com. And thanks once again to Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs at a super reasonable price with a quick turnaround. Editing, production, recording, jingles, podcast music. All of your audio needs, she can help you. You can find Studio 121 on Instagram at official studio 121. Last but not least, I'd like to thank Stompbox Sonic. They provide musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Based in Boston, Massachusetts, Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009 uh, by working collaboratively through one on-one consultations. They do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring your music to life. And they are fabulous folks. You should check them out. Um, even if you are not in the Boston area, they have a ton of rad pedals available on their website. So check them out on social media or at stompboxsonic.com. These sponsors support the podcast and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes to sponsors and to the Midriff Instagram, Facebook pages, website, whatever else you might need. All right, so today's interview is with Barb Morrison, who is a rad producer and musician. They have worked with Blondie, shared the stage with Ramones, played with members of the New York Dolls. What more do you need? Nothing. You don't need anything else. This is it. Uh, they have a ton of great uh, notes in this conversation around like songwriting, what it means to be a producer, uh, even like mic and recording tips. There's just, there's a lot. So I think you're getting a lot out, out of this uh, episode. So check it out and uh, stick around after the interview where I dig into 
an application of the Music Your Bechdel test, which I'm going to <laughs> informally call, can an ad pass the test if the musician is wearing a bikini top? It's the question on everyone's mind. I know. So, but, but for real, this is a question that keeps coming up. Uh, stick around, listen to it, see what, see what I'm thinking about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. All right. Let's get into the interview with Barb Morrison. Welcome to Midriff. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I am happy you are here. Feelings mutual. Works out. Uh, <laughs> so uh, can you, for the folks who might not know you, uh, yourself, introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about your background with uh, music and life? <laughs> um, my name is Barb Morrison. I am a record producer and film score composer, and my pronouns are they, them. Cool. Uh, so as far as like your, your background with music, it's fairly extensive. It is, yes. <laughs> uh, can you tell folks about kind of like a, maybe the three minute version of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the first situation was me sitting on the kitchen floor, dragging out the pots and pans and they kind of couldn't keep me away from that. So, um, so, you know, that was just kind of obvious as, as like a three-year-old. And then just started kind of like playing um, every instrument I could get my hands on. They started me at piano at seven, saxophone at nine, picked up my first guitar. Um, after I jumped on stage with the Pretenders, when, <laughs> when I, How like, old were you when that happened? So I think I was like 16 or 17. <laughs> And, um, uh -huh. I might've been, yeah, 16. And, um, Wait, I, where, where was that? Like, I, I'm from New York, but yeah. my family did a brief stint in Tampa just like mm -hmm. for a few years. So that was in Tampa. Nice. And I was like a goth kid and, um, you know, goth and punk, the pretenders aren't really punk, but whatever. Um, it's fine. great, great songwriters anyway, and jumped on stage and I got to sing, one line of Tattooed Love Boys, which was this great song by the Pretenders. And I got like, you know, pummeled by security. And then <laughs> um, and she actually was really cool. She turned to the security and she was like, be careful. Like, Aww. like, you know, like telling the security like I was little. I was right, like this little. is a kid. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So then I went home that night and I was like so psyched. I was just like, I have to get a guitar. I have to get a guitar. So this was before the internet, so I had to kind of like put the word out to my friends, and I bought a guitar the next day for $15. Wow. And I just started learning how to play guitar, and um, so then... What, you know, wait, what was, what was of, the... Hold on, what was the guitar that you got? It was just like this crummy um, acoustic guitar, you know, it was just something that was like a banger, and um, and that, that, that Christmas, my parents actually bought me they bought me a Fender Strat. So they, nice. they they kind of believed in me, but they didn't believe enough in me to like 
go to music school or anything, which I'm kind of glad about because I, I don't think I would have liked music school. So then that just took off. I was, you know, I was experimenting a lot with um, mind altering substances. Uh-huh. And uh, and then I just was like, OK, you know, I'm a teenager. I'm 17. It's time to get out of here and go back to New York. So I hit the streets of like, I basically, you know, from there kind of grew up in Chelsea in the East Village in New York City. Mm -hmm. And it was the 80s. And there was some really cool stuff going on in New York City in the 80s. You know, it was like it was still dangerous and it was still rough and tumble. And um, one of the first gigs that I got was to play saxophone in a it was like a semi New York Dolls reunion. Um, it was Sylvain and Johnny Thunders. David Johansson wouldn't wouldn't participate, but it was um, I'm sorry, Jerry Nolan, Sylvain Sylvain, and uh, Johnny Thunders. So it was three of the three of the dolls. That's three quarters. That's fine. Yeah. So <laughs> that was one of the first gigs, and um, you know, I'm, I was a teenager, so it just kind of took off from there. I went um, got in Cherry Vanilla's band. She was this Warhol star. Got to play like at uh, Holly Woodlawn's birthday party. That's another Warhol star. For the viewers that don't know who she is, she's the Holly came from Miami FLA in the um, <laughs> Lou Reed song. Uh-huh. So I got, I got to play at her birthday party. I was just like a little kid, you know. So it was like a nice education right off the bat. Yeah, like you're able to sort of like hop in there. And I feel like it's interesting to me that you were able to hop in on like sax that like I feel like you don't hear as that happening as much. And I wonder what it felt like your role was, you know, with with uh, sax versus like guitar versus different instruments. Well, I really like I I really looked up to the to the sax players like mm-hmm. or, I like I wanted when I moved to New York, I really wanted to be Ornette Coleman and mm-hmm. John and John Lurie, like John the lounge lizards were so completely badass. Mm-hmm. Eric Dolphy, all those out all those out jazz players. And then when I got there, I realized, oh, there's this whole other amazing scene going on. So in the 80s, saxophone was still cool. It was not till like the mid 90s to mid 2000s that it like could not get arrested in any <laughs> songs at all, you know? <laughs> and now it kind of has come back a little bit, but like, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Saxophone was completely uncool for a little while. I think what ruined it for all us saxophonists was. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it ruined it. I feel like it elevated it. (laughs) I mean, it was great. It's ironic, but like it just kind of killed us for a decade. Plus the thing as a, as an arranger and as a, as a producer that I learned from being a saxophone player is just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Yeah. 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 You know? So it's like you become, you walk in, you're a sax player and people are just like, let's put it all over everything. Uh No, let's not. (laughs) Let's not put it all over. A a dabble, do ya? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so you were in New York, and so you got to. I don't know how. Where did we stop? You were like, I was a teen. I was in New York. Um, I got you know glommed onto the punk scene immediately. I mean, they took me in. I didn't really have to glom onto it. They took Mm -hmm. me in. I got in a band that 
we got signed a bunch of times. We were on three labels. It was this band called Gutter Boys, like these really cute boys that wrote like great pop hooks, but like came from punk rock. Mm-hmm. So it was like we were kind of like a punk band, but like once the major labels got in like involved, we you know they were like write that ballad. And yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like we started off touring with the Ramones and the Stray Cats and all these like cool kind of punkyish bands. And then the next thing you knew, we were like opening for Brian Adams, right. you know, but I mean, that was cool too, but it was just, you know, it was, it was the eighties, nineties. We were, um, everybody in the band was super cute. And so, you know, everybody, like all the cool photographers at the time wanted to take our picture. Mm-hmm. The lead singer was gorgeous. So like all those guys, like he, like everybody was in love with him. <laughs> So Uh it was just, you know, we got shot by like Bruce Weber and Allen Ginsberg and all these great photographers. And um, so it was just a cool ride. You know, it was 80s, 90s. Cycling right along with that was my own drug and alcohol situation. And that finally took me down around 1989. Mm -hmm. And, And I got clean and sober and I've been clean and sober since then. So, you know, that's like a kind of like my prehistory of like, you know, falling off the stage with a Marshall stack on top of me <laughs> and asking everybody in the next day, so what exactly happened? <laughs> but, you know, it was it was good. It was good. And then so from there I got a deal of my own on RCA as a solo artist. I got signed by the by the president of RCA, this guy Bob Buziak. He's no longer alive, but um he you know, the typical thing that used to happen back then was You'd go in gangbusters on a major deal. And then, you know, Bob, for instance, he was the president of RCA. Right when I was going to mix my demos, I get a call. Bob Buziak has been fired. So you've been shelved. And that was like a typical, that was a typical thing that happened because they were, they were giving out, you know, record deals like candy back then. Right, right, right. So you just were lucky if you made it past a certain stage without getting shelved. You know, that was that. That was short-lived. I went back with the guys in Gutter Boy. We put out this record on Mercury Records. We did pretty good. I mean, you know, we were all right. But um, it, it just it just kept not being for me. Like, I didn't just want to be just a sax player. Yeah. I was a multi-instrumentalist. I was a singer and I was a writer. So I was just like, I'm just going to kind of do this do this other thing. So I left that band. I started my own band and <clears throat> we never got signed in that band, but we did, you know, we toured with a lot of Palooza and we, mm-hmm. we did some great shows. So it was, you know, it was, it was really fun. It was a really fun time. I mean, I can't, I definitely can't complain about my life in bands, but I'm, <laughs> I am definitely glad I'm not in a band right now. <laughs> Why is that? Glad. Why is that? It's funny because I've turned into like the group therapist for the bands now. Mm-hmm. Like in it's the Metallica just... documentary. Yeah. You... <laughs> yeah, actually. And I mean, I know, you know, I kind of know how that all goes, but it's, I think that what happened for me was once I put down like, like the drugs and alcohol and really, really wanted the spotlight on me. Mm -hmm. I think I just became a little bit more like I wanted to help all these great people tell their stories. Yeah. And that feels so good to me. And it's like, I just always get so frustrated because I know so many talented artists. Yeah. Like I know so many people that are just like the most mind blowing songwriters. And then I'm like, why haven't, how come no one's heard you? 
So I just kind of got a lot of fulfillment starting off that way, going like, hey, I'd rather put my energy here and help you. I can see what you're kind of doing wrong that's like standing in your way. Yeah, yeah. And so like just kind of my, um, I don't know, maybe just that little segment that I just told you about, maybe that kind of primed me into like, you know, being on the punk scene, arriving like with a bunch of jazz knowledge and then getting involved in major labels. It was like all this aspects that were like, you know, lots of cool musical stuff, not giving a shit. So not giving a fuck like like in the punk rock scene and then kind of shining it up a little bit so we could make like make it like okay for the listener to be like yeah oh yeah I like this you know yeah that makes a lot of sense like it feels like you're just like you have all of these different skill sets and sort of they all like magically came together in where you currently are right now true and also I realized the more I became a studio rat I realized that I think oh not that I think I know I'm like I'm an introvert that actually plays an extrovert on tv you know I'm not really I'm not really like the spotlight person I'm more of like a little bit like let's just kind of be in the lab, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so what has been happening for you during quarantine? When it hit, we had, you know, my, me and my team, because I have this team of engineers, mm-hmm. we, um, we had six weeks of work just like pulled right out from under us. Yep. So that was like, whoa, what, what are we going to do here? You know, we had, right. We were in the middle of making two records. I had just finished the Asia Kate Dillon record. You know, I mean, they had a whole, like, a record release party planned in New York City. Mm-hmm. So it was just, we all were, like, it came to a grinding halt. And uh, I got nervous for a little bit. I was just like, whoa, my job is very one-on-one. It's very close to people. And... Mm-hmm it's people shouting and breathing hard. <laughs> so what's the matter? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, ah, oh, this is going to be bad. So yeah, we kind of had like a standstill for maybe two months. Um, you know, that weird two months that happened to all yeah. of us where we were like, I, I, I don't, we all watched, what was the name of that movie that was out at that time? Pandemic. And we all were like, is this really happening? (laughs) And then I thought, you know, I had been doing, I only had like a few of my music mentor artists, which is kind of this, um, I mean, I was really just, just starting it out before, Mm -hmm. right before the pandemic hit. It's done on zoom and it's, I mean, not to sound too corny, but it's like a little bit like life coaching with music or songwriting. It's just, you know, kind of like doing therapy with somebody and trying to get their real truth out in their songs. So I had two of those people that I was working with, two artists, and my wife was like, I guess you could just kind of start focusing on that. And I was like, hmm, I guess like and then and then I just started putting it up on social media, like saying you know, we're doing this, we're all stuck at home. Mm -hmm. And it just took off. It was great. Like people just took to it so well. So, you know, we're all sitting here in our PJs now, you know, writing songs together. And then once we kind of loosened up a tiny bit, one of my engineers who, you know, me and him kind of created like a pod, I guess that's what people are calling Mm -hmm. it. Um, He wasn't really going out and seeing anybody and we certainly weren't 
Um, so he would come to my home studio because we just felt safe together. We'd keep masks on, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he and I would do like uh, like remote sessions with people so they could kind of, you know, I was still producing and I was mm-hmm. still doing my, you know, 10 hour days. Like it was just like the studio, but we weren't, we just didn't have the person in the studio with us. Yeah. So we'd get them on Zoom or whatever. Um, you know, I could coach them through their vocal if they had logic or something. And then they'd just pop it over to us and we'd, you know, we'd be making the track for them. So it was it was a little bit like normal, you know, but everybody's just not in the same room. And the music mentor stuff is great then, mm-hmm. you know, it's like everything from like, I wrote one song, only one song in my life, and I don't know what to do with it. And can I write more? Like there's that person yeah, on yeah, one, yeah. End, one end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end is like, uh, you know, veterans that are like, I have like five records out and some of them have done good, but now I'm having a writer's block. And what do I do in quarantine? Yep. You know, if I don't play an instrument something like that right you know? so it's just been <laughs> everything in between plus people you know asking me like how do I I don't know I'm just gonna pick something how do I change the velocity in the midi notes on logic you know things like right. that like, very technical like, versus more like deep down emotional I'm stuck kind of thing yeah yeah, yeah. so it's it's been really cool I mean I didn't think I, I it was like a blessing came out of the pandemic for me you know mm-hmm it sounds almost like with the com- combination of your different roles, it's almost like you're like a music doula. Yes, I like that. I actually like that term a lot. I never really thought about it, but we are birthing. We're definitely birthing. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that I think is my favorite part of the process is mm-hmm. it's, it always has been when people walk into the studio and they don't have anything. It's just like invisible air. And then that night they walked out with a fully formed song and we're all looking at each other going, where did this come from? Like, Mm -hmm. where was it before? Where was it 10 hours? It was it sitting 10 hours ago. Was this sitting in the song waiting room waiting for its (laughs) number to be called? Like, like, you know, where was Mm -hmm. it? So I just want, I just want people to um, not waste their time by, you know, not turning it up to 11. It's like, let's really go there and let's get, we all know that thing when you hear, you, you hear a song and you're like, oh my God, that's the thing. Yeah. Remember, like, remember the first time you heard like Jeff Buckley? Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh my God. Yeah. And I feel like that, the point that you're getting at there is so important because, you know, music is about self-expression, whether it's something that you as an artist are expressing or it's something that you as a listener are tapping in, into the expression of or identifying with in some way. And so, like, when you're only seeing one type of person who is expressing something, the likelihood of someone maybe getting at that in the same way might be different. Yes. And this is also, it. you know, it's it's kind of miraculous when it happens. That's Mm -hmm. why it's so, it goes, you know, it gives you chills and it makes you cry and makes you jump. It makes you dance. It's, it's really miraculous. And, and it is magic. It's we're, we're assembling vibrations. It is very, and it's a very odd magical trick. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. It's like magician work, you know? Uh, All right. How about we scoot into a little bit of around like gear and gender stuff? Okay. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, so ask All me right. some things. 
let's okay. let's so so what have your experiences been re- been like around like gender identities and music gear gear interesting um i can tell you that being a young not male saxophone player walking mm-hmm. into a saxophone store was always like you know the old dudes in there would always be like oh how cute you know uh-huh. and then like i I'd, I'd walk in and they'd just be like okay and i'd walk up to the counter and i'd open the my side now i have a Buescher alto from 1928 which is like an oh. amazing horn and they'd be like oh how cute that's so sweet and then i'd open my case and they'd all crowd around it and go where'd you, where'd you get this <laughs> uh-huh. you know so all of a sudden i was taken seriously because i had the rad gear uh, what else do i want to say about gear um i was raised by three guys so I didn't really, I didn't really have the Barb is pretty good for a girl thing. Uh-huh. I had the voices in me that were more like, if you're not going to play as good as the guys, then don't bother. Mm-hmm. That was just mm-hmm. kind of the, the voice that was instilled in me. So mm-hmm. I never was like, it was, it just never felt like a novelty to me where I know I've heard a lot of, uh, female born people coming up being raised with this like negative voice in their head where they were just like this is a boys club I knew it was a boys club maybe it's because of my gender I didn't identify as a female I'm not sure like where but I still was read as one so they they treated me as one and um I just kind of didn't care that much but I would I've experienced I definitely experienced like the thing I said about the saxophone store. And, yeah. you know, gear uh, I, I, gear is definitely still a boys club, but I know that there's, you know, there are some, there are some cool companies. I mean, Earthquaker pedals, they're all so cool over there. They're, yeah. they're so wicked, and they have such cool, interesting pedals. My God, yeah. I mean, it's just so, I'm a horn player. I play, I play mm-hmm. clarinet, too. I was, I was the, mm-hmm. um, playing clarinet through some of these earthquakers about a couple weeks ago and Ooh, it's just that's good. wild what were what were you playing well or like what pedals were you using with the clarinet um do you remember oh god i don't even remember i think i was using the aqueduct maybe and the yeah. organizer and something else one of the bigger cool. ones let me see what's up there um it was one of the bigger ones now i don't have my glasses on so i can't see but I, you know i was making like um I was making some film score type stuff for something and uh, Mm -hmm. and it just was so it didn't even sound like a clarinet. It was great. That's so cool. So, you know, I really (laughs) appreciated the way they they approached me Mm -hmm. and like what a cool company they are. And they try to they just try to like pull from all different walks of life of musicians, which is what we need. That's what music is. Right. You know, so gear is a boys club for sure. But do we care? I don't know. Do we like, like, <laughs> screw them, you know, like, we just like, we're going to still play. So um, I, I've experienced the whole thing. I've experienced worse things in the studio than I have with gear. 
that was my follow-up yeah. question. Because actually, I recently in an, had an interview with Sarah Lando from the Julie Ruin, and I think she said something about how like she saw uh, the studio is sort of like the last bastion of like of sexism more so than other spaces perhaps. And I was going to ask you that because you spend so much time in the studio. Like, do you feel similarly? I feel like the opposite of what I just said, where I, I actually have had to prove myself. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's a bummer, but it's the truth. And also, you know, within genres as well, like, you know, I, I was, I've been listening to hip hop since the seventies. I've been listening mm -hmm. to hip hop since the first Sugar Hill Gang came out, you know? Yeah. But I still have to prove myself in hip hop sessions. Cause sometimes like, you know, it, that's definitely as far as, uh, um, I'm sorry, it is not so much anymore. The, the, mm -hmm. the girls are really coming up, which is great. I don't know if you're familiar with gender amplified, those, yes. yeah, those, mm -hmm. those chicks are awesome. Yeah. They're so, they're mm -hmm. all so cool and they're all like making great beats and stuff. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's definitely, they're coming up and they're like starting to take over, which is great. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, I've definitely had to prove myself. Um, and I've had to prove myself technical wise as well. I, um, I used to be in this producer team called Super Buddha and mm -hmm. the combo of the two of us was, he was in, he was in, he would stay in the control room and kind of like, you know, mess with the compressors and get the faders happening. And I would be in the live room, miking the amps and miking yeah. the drum set. And m anybody who's ever done it knows that like miking a drum set is a science. Yeah. And I just remember one time we were all standing out, I was standing outside the studio with this band they had we had just gotten like their first takes up where we were like checking to see how their drum sounds went and then like you know we took a break and we were all going downstairs to smoke and it was all dudes and they're all talking to each other and i'm standing there smoking with them and they say um wow he really got us a great drum sound huh <laughs> and i'm like bitch i got who do you who do you think mike that kit like who do you think knows <laughs> Like an RE20 goes inside and a D112 goes outside or whatever I used that time. I actually don't yeah. even use that combo anymore. But Well, that's good to know because I actually was wondering that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a science and it's like I was the one in the room doing it and they completely overlooked mm -hmm. me. They saw me doing it and they mm -hmm. completely overlooked me. So it's just like I think that there's a certain amount of um, having to be a little bit louder I hope it changes soon. I think it is, like I said, the, the all those women from Gender Amplified are so rad. And they're all like, the first person that I ever worked with from Gender Amplified was um, somebody named Ebony Smith. She just walked into the studio. I hired her as an engineer. She, she's an excellent producer as well, but I hired her as an mm -hmm. engineer. She just walked in and like started just like ripping up the patch bay and like re like patching oh, wow. things. And I was just like, yeah, damn, we need more. We need more of this. Yes. So I, I'm not too worried, you know. Do you do you have thoughts on why maybe you didn't have that experience as much as a performer versus like in the studio? Uh, I did probably have a little bit as a performer as well. You know, I've worked, I, as you know, I work with Blondie. I mean, Debbie Harry is the ultimate chick in the band. 
you know, she's mm-hmm. the ultimate. And still, she just, like, couldn't care less. She's just like, whatever. <laughs> like, she's just like, what? you know, if they want to act that way, it's, you know. And I, I think I, I think I was always a little bit more like that. Um, mm-hmm. I, one of the guys in the last band that I was in said, you're, like, they were moving amps, and I didn't really feel like moving the amps that day. And, and he just turned to uh-huh. me, and he was like, you're only a girl when it's convenient. <laughs> and I realized I was like I guess I do kind of play this a little bit like sometimes I do I don't know I just there are so many badass women right now there's so many badass women that I just I'm wondering do you think that this is still an issue it doesn't seem like it to me you know from the people that I talk to it definitely seems like like it is but that it happens differently to folks differently based on a combination of like their uh, experience, their age. Uh, mm. I think things are better now than they used to be. So maybe they had more of it then and than now. I also think it depends on setting. So like some people experience it more live. Some people experience it more like at a gear shop. Some people experience it more recording. I think that that's, that's kind of been what I have seen. Um, and then sometimes it's like, you know, that those experiences intersect you know, obviously always with people's identities across the spectrum. So it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it does happen, but it's, some people are able, I think, to like self-protect a little bit, or maybe they just are, are used to hanging in a certain way where they're just like, it's cool, whatever, you know, it's a range. Yeah. I think it also depends on what your perception of, um, female power is. Mm-hmm. You know, I see female power as like so strong and so mm-hmm. powerful and so sexy that like, I just don't, oh, I just, when I see women or trans people or even non-binary people, when I see them mm-hmm. own it, there's nothing that can compete against that. I think maybe that's, I don't know, maybe yeah. that's why guys are scared of it. Maybe that's why they act the way they do, but like. So I guess it just depends on how, you know, if you're female or female identified or part of you as identified as female, I think it just depends on how you, how you own it. I think you're right. And I think that when you have power through your talent or respect or appearance or whatever it might be, that you are able to uh, construct that scenario a little bit differently than if you're like really brand new or younger or a person of color or what, you know, like a trans person, then it might be that, you know, you can, you can get that power, but it might be that it's at initially it's different than it is later on when you are really like able to, to be like owning it as you're saying. Yeah. I mean, look at WAP. That was just so Mm -hmm. like, whoa. And everybody was like, I don't know. I'm really scared. I have an opinion. And they just, the two of them were like, yeah, this is what it is. So, you know, we don't, again, this goes back to like being in your truth. People just, that's, that's the, where the power is just rip the blinds open and show people your real truth, you know? It's I think part of it is that some people are scared of other people's real of truth course. because it, it, it breaks down their system in which they have the power. But I also think that people, I think, generally are scared of female power. It's sure. like that that yeah. that um, the cartoon thing that's in the you ever see Pink Floyd, the wall. 
Oh, I don't know. There's I, a thing I'm where like sure. the, okay. the, they have this thing where like a flower comes. It's like a, you know, symbolism of a, like a vagina, but it like sure. swallows yeah. up the guy. And it's like, you know, it's that Freudian, Very subtle. Yeah, it's that Freudian thing. It's like, it's, it's, yeah. I think people are just, I find female power so big and so strong mm-hmm. um, that like, you're either with it or you're not. And if you're if you're fighting against it even a little bit, it's there's going to be all kinds of anger and fear and confusion and all you know just just go with it. I never I never <laughs> as a as a as a even you know I identified as trans very very young from like one of my mm-hmm. earliest memories, but I never was like I didn't hate the female part of me. Mm-hmm. Like I understood what it was and, you know, that's, that's kind of why I didn't like transition into like a trans man. I feel more non-binary, but I just think female power is a thing to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. It's a thing to be celebrated. It's a thing to be embraced. And there is a reason that it's, people are scared of it. <laughs> so there's a reason the whole world is scared. I mean, look, look what just happened, um, you know, female power yeah. in the white house ooh, not good oh then make it a black woman woo they went nuts you yeah. know so it was they were okay i mean they weren't okay they were upset when it was a black dude but a black woman whoa i mean that's some powerful stuff and yeah. they went nuts so yeah. it's a it's a scary powerful thing and Whatever. We don't have to get into politics. She was not my she no. was not my first choice, but I think she, you know, I'm glad sure. she's gonna I'm glad she's gonna do something. You know, I'm glad she's yeah. gonna be in there doing it, doing her thing. Right. Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting because I it it functions similarly. It's like you somebody you where whatever the setting is, whether it's politics or music or whatever, it's like you see someone who is disrupting the power hierarchy that you were told is supposed to be there, mm. and then people get threatened and they feel like they need to like you know, attack yeah, uh, literally. out of this weird, out of, yeah, literally in this case too, uh, out of like a threat yeah. to their own, what they've been told is owed yes. to them. Yeah. It's, they're going to get swallowed up by the pink Floyd flower. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you can tell I did um, a lot of drugs, <laughs> but I haven't since 1989, I, but they're still in there somewhere. They're still yeah. in there. You got, you know, I like that you could go back there if I you can, needed it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so for your personal production, like gear, like what are, what are your go-tos as far as when you're, when you're in the process of songwriting or producing, like what type, what gear are you doing or how does that work? I'm for a you? straight up logic user on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I prefer massively not to engineer, although I will, if the budget is not big enough you know, usually a lot of times on film scores and stuff like the budget isn't big enough or whatever. So I, I'll have to engineer. Yeah. But if, if it's me engineering, I'm straight up logic. I've been logic since logic four. So that's how long I've been doing logic. Uh-huh. But, you know, most of the people on my team, a couple of them are Ableton. Most of them are Pro Tools. But for me, um, I don't know, I kind of look at Pro Tools and I'm just like, it just seems so it's very difficult i'm just like just why do you guys like this <laughs> and my home studio i'm just i have um you know the 
the regular old home stuff. I got Novation launch key and I got, mm -hmm. you know, my the Scarlet. I got like all that easy stuff at home. Um, yeah. I have a pair of NS10s, Yamaha NS10s that actually have an amazing history behind them. They were the hmm. original monitors from Green Street Studios where Fight the Power was recorded. What? Come on. So you can, you can Wikipedia that. But yeah, so I was That's lucky awesome. enough to get those. I have those NS10s and I have Oritones. And I get made fun of a lot for that gear situation, for that monitor situation. But honestly, I work long hours. People really make fun of me. I don't know if you know what Oritones are. Do you know what they are? Mm. They're, they're like these really no. small... They're really small, old school monitors. Um, okay. But if I'm working long, if I'm working 10 hours, my ears are going to get fatigued. Yeah. So, and, mm -hmm. and if my ears can, like, if my ears can, like, custom, like, start listening to that kind of a small thing, I start yep. getting, like, I'm already, like, mixing as I'm going along. Yep. And then when I click on to my NS10s, which everybody also makes fun of, <laughs> um then those sound like super bassy yeah 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 and i'm like whoa that's really bassy this is like ridiculous but because <laughs> yamaha and ns10s are like the most flat things in the world uh-huh but um you know not to get too gearhead but that's, that's... what we're here for <laughs> oh that's what we're here for okay <laughs> no worries so um so yes yeah, so then i can i can talk like that so it's NS10 and Oritone monitors. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds like an old person, but that's what I enjoy. You know, I have the, I have a whole wall of, I'm still old school pedals. I really yeah. enjoy pedals. So I have a bunch of pedals. Um, I just busted out, um, I was going to show it to you, but I guess it doesn't really matter because we're not doing visuals, right? Oh, is it a chaos pad? I can't see. chaos say. Yeah. pad. I just busted that out last <laughs> week. That's fun. That's got like a little, you know, radio head thing going on. Nice. There. And, um, you know, I'm a multi-instrumentalist, so I'm horns, lots of guitars. I got guitars in here. I'm endorsed by D'Angelico. So there's oh, yeah. beautiful, I was going to ask you guitars. about that. Yeah. yeah there's, oh, my God. Those things are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I come from the playing the pots and pans on the kitchen floor, so that's my gear. <laughs> Perfect, you make know? it up. <laughs> if, if I'm in, if I'm in the studio, I mean, look, I built studios in New York City. It's, it's, mm -hmm. you know, we had, we had all the stuff. We had the Neves and the Tube Techs and the, you know, DBXs and all the, you know, eleven seventy sixes. We, you know, we had it. Yeah. But I just don't. I don't have it here. I just. Here's the other thing is I think that music, we did a vocal in my living room about a month ago mm -hmm. and it had that cool modern Billie Eilish sound hmm. that like we couldn't get, you can't get that anywhere. You can't get right. that, in, not that Avatar is open anymore, but you couldn't get it in a big studio. You couldn't get it in Bearsville or Avatar. It's about doing, making it sound that way because it's in the living it's room. It's literally in your bedroom or whatever. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. were listening back and we were like, oh my God, that's like, that just sounds so cool and modern. And so we just, we just kind of experiment with things here. You know, I'm not like a super geary type of like mic person. Again, my studios in New York City that I've been in, mm. we had all the good stuff. You know, we had like, 
I used to have this beautiful Neumann TLM-193 that was mm. just, it was just creamy on everybody's voice. And, um, but, you know, I use something like Versatile now, like a 414. You yeah. can use that on anything. It's just, it, you can get it to be like glassy if you need it to be glassy. If you switch it, you can, um, one of my guys actually used it on a kick drum. Mm. And I was like, are you nuts? Huh. And I listened back and it was beautiful. So it's, those are nice. <laughs> those are nice. Yeah, those are nice, you Sold. know, kind of like versatile things. Um, but I don't get too nerdy. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know my gear. I definitely can like sit here and like geek out with you. Well, as somebody who's pretty new to recording, what are, what are three mics that you would recommend in a low to mid price range for people, someone starting out that you would have, uh, let's say other than a 57? I wouldn't say a 57 just yeah. because that's a live I feel like mic. everybody's like 57. But yeah, 57 yeah, is really a live microphone. That yeah. was like the, you know, that was like the crap we had on stage at CBGB's, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're great, but they're like, it's like a truck. It's like, they're just, yes. you know, they're, they're meant to be, they're like meant to be spit in thrown and, on the ground. Know, throw, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so 414 would be my, to me, my most versatile mm-hmm. thing that is like in the lower range. Um, some of the better blue microphones, I think, are kind of cute. Um, I mean, they're good. You know, I, I don't, I don't know if I like the cheaper ones. Yeah, I, I don't want them to kill me because what do you? I, no, no. Well, what do you like them on? I guess would be my question. Okay, so here's the thing, Hillary. Mm-hmm. This is one thing that I learned, like, when I was, when I, when I was in charge of miking all the stuff. Yeah. Uh, Mike can sound different, a beautiful, a, you know, a Neumann, a beautiful, the best Neumann that there is yep. can sound, I mean, what would that be? Like a U87 or some yeah. beautiful thing, right? It's just going to sound different on everyone's, everyone's instrument, everyone's drums, everyone's the timbre or whatever you call it of people's voices. Mm-hmm. So this one studio that I, I said I built, which was in Greenpoint, we only had two mics there for vocals. We had that TLM 197 and we had was it 197 or 193 TLM 197, I think. And, um, and then we had this gold Lawson mm-hmm. and it was two ends of the spectrum. The, the TLM was super warm and dark. Yeah. And the Lawson was nice and like shiny, but still each one sounded different on different people's voices. Totally. So you can't be like, oh, I got this Neumann. It's going to sound great across the board. It really is just about how... Experimenting you know, I, forever. <laughs> I, like how, I like how my voice sounds on an RE20. Mm-hmm. That's a kick drum mic or like a broadcast radio mic. Right. But I really like how that feels on my voice. Mm-hmm. It's just, you just got to, you got to experiment and... Um, I just try to make sure people know that there there's really like no rules. Mm-hmm. If, if you're going to go to like Berkeley school of music or Juilliard, right. they're going to give you all these rules. It's like in the end of the day, there's not really rules. It's just, you just got to figure the stuff out and feel what's good for you. I'm friends. You know who Steve Lillywhite is? Yes. I'm friends with him a long time ago. I called him and asked him, I was like, Steve, how do you get a great, snare sound i thought he was gonna like tell me like the perfect recipe you know mm-hmm. and he just was like barb you know what you like just start turning let start, experiment Turn until the you knobs. hear what, until you hear what you like mm-hmm. he, he was like because what i like might not be what you like yep 
So I just want people to have that freedom. Like I can't, I can't be like, oh, use this thing and it's gonna make all your troubles go away. It's just, I, I, I just said my monitor combo, and I'm sure there's <laughs> people out there going like, ew. Why would you why would you want to listen on those? Yeah. Well, I think it that I mean that's the nice thing about it though, right? Is like people can both like make do with what they have or be creative with what they have, um but also like that each new piece of gear can open up a new set of possibilities that might be exactly in realm with what people traditionally use it with, but you could, you know, make something totally different. You know, like this one sounds really good on kazoo or whatever. You know, like. <laughs> Do you really use kazoo? I don't, but. <laughs> Do you? I just want to. All right, I've got dreams. You can't, you can't tear my dreams down. <laughs> you can never have. Have we ever heard a serious kazoo song in our life? Ever? Can you name? I one? can't name one. I can't. I'll no. be honest. Once but... you hear it, it's funny. It could be the saddest song. But like you, you said, you had you said you had the clarinet, and I feel like you could probably find a way to run enough pedals, like through an octave and a delay with a kazoo to make it sound cool. Maybe. Actually, you might be right about that. I bet it could be very, very, like, textured. Yeah. I think I have a challenge on my hands. <laughs> but a lot of people see clarinet as, like, a funny instrument. I started, I kind of, I started playing clarinet. I was in um, the Antony and the Johnsons. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know who that is. I was yep. in their orchestra. Yeah. And that was all, like, super, super dark, sad. So, you know, there was nothing funny about it. But you could yep. be funny with it, I guess. Yeah, I, I you know I look gear is gear. I grew up on a I grew up on a Fostex X15, which mm -hmm. is like a cassette, a cassette yeah. four track, and I just had to get crafty. So I couldn't be like a super gearhead. I just had to I had to figure out like what you just said. It's like take a kazoo and start making like noises till you get something weird. Yeah, and so I think it's more about. Yes, gear is great and it can enhance stuff, but it's not going to be your savior. Yes. You know? Yeah. You have to know, you have to, you have to have a plan or have, you know, be able to experiment with it enough to be able to get somewhere and that it's not, it's not the thing itself. Right. Yeah. Um, so what's something gear related that you learned that you feel proud of? Something gear related that I learned that I feel proud of. I have to say, again, I'm not trying... Well, no, I am going to give them a shout-out. Mm -hmm. um, those Earthquaker pedals. Mm -hmm. Because they're so... They're, they're complicated and simple at the same time. Yes. And they're extremely versatile. And I have, I have a bunch of them. And I still feel like I have, like, barely scratched the surface with them. Yeah. So, like I said, I was like messing around with a clarinet last week on them, and I feel like I feel like that's just like the tip of the. I, the, I mean, look, I put the guitars run through run guitars through them all the time, mm -hmm. but it's it's. I feel like I've barely scratched the surface with them. I feel like there are so many unique things that could be done with those pedals. So I think that that's a thing I'm very proud of, which I'm just like. I've kind of got it down. I kind of got the Earthquakers down, but I also yeah. feel like very teachable. I have, I'm having a teachable moment with them as well. Right. So I do feel, I feel good that like I've jumped in, jumped into those. So it's, it's a deep end, the pool there, but um, just doing the clarinet through it. I mean, doing vocals through it. Totally. When we, when we recorded a bunch of the Gina Volpe stuff, the mm -hmm. um, her solo stuff, we, we did, a, we did some vocals through the Earthquaker and we also did um, 
we did some cool trippy guitars mm-hmm. you know real spacey sounds she's got that enzo pedal yeah mm-hmm. oh my god that yeah thing's so cool totally so that's kind of proud. I mean, I don't know really what what you mean by proud. But it's like, to, I, I mean, I, it's, I feel, you get to define it. Choose I your feel, own adventure. I just feel good that like I've gotten into them and I'm still going to climb that mountain. Well, I, I love that. I love the uh, the potential of that, of like trying these things on uh, not just guitar, not just bass, not just synth, but like clarinet. Like, can I use this, you know, I don't know, like the arpanoid or something like some other like pedal that wouldn't necessarily be used on vocals use it on vocals and make it real weird you know yeah like run a vocal through that bit commander or something right it's, you know i ran the uh the data corruptor through uh like tiny electronic drum kit thing and oh, wow. uh and that was real fun yeah like a, like a toy one of those toy ones with the pads uh yeah, yeah, it sounded yeah. awesome so yeah great yeah okay so if you were speaking to folks in the music industry so like it could be the like gear specific folks it could be uh in studios venue owners bands whatever who wanted to make change in the industry for the better and they reached out to you they're like barb how do we make it better what would you tell them and you're talking about like labels and stuff however you want like anybody in the industry that you want to however you want to address it again give the person that you least expect it a chance because mm-hmm. that is, I, I find so much incredible talent in the most strangest places. And the people that come to me that they're just like, I don't even know, like, especially with music mentor stuff, these, these people come to me and they're like, I don't know, I kind of just have like these little melodies in my head. I mm-hmm. don't really know if I'm going to do what I should do. And then I get in with them like a few weeks or a month in and all of a sudden they have this body of work and I'm just like, holy shit, you're like, you're like a genius. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, just don't, don't give, give the most unlikely person an ear because you never know where it's going to, where it's going to come totally. from. That's what I That's would awesome. say. All right. That is fabulous. I appreciate that hot tip because I think. People need to hear that more often uh, because people... I, tr- I try to say that to everybody that yeah. comes in my path, comes into my path. You know, it's yeah. just like, it's, you, you don't, you just, sometimes we don't even know what's in us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. That's very deep. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today, Barb. I really appreciate it. This was super fun. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Barb just had so many good stories, uh, like hot tips around gear and mics. I know I learned a lot. Hopefully you did as well. If you want to learn more about them, definitely check out their website, barbmorrisonmusic.com. And you can find them on Instagram at barb underscore Morrison and on Twitter at Barb Morrison. I'll have links in the show notes so you can check it out. All right. So. I was scooting through my Instagram feed a couple of weeks ago, as one does, and I saw a pic of a woman sitting on her bed in a pajama bikini top of some sort and shorts with her synthesizer. And other than her clothing, her pose was not particularly sexual and she was, you know, holding her hands on her headphones. But I was like, all right, I know what's going on here. We got to we got to check this out. So we'll surprise exactly no one that when I see like this, see a photo like this, I, I feel like I have to dig deeper 
not because there's a problem with it per se, but because photos like this are often handled poorly in social media and marketing. And I just wanted to see how the company was going to deal with it. As it turns out, this ad really helps illustrate one of the more nuanced points of the Music Gear Bechtel test, uh, which I discussed in detail in episode 13 of Midriff and also in a blog on my website. And I'll provide links in the show notes to those as well. So I created the Music Bechdel test with the intention of providing an e- sort of like an easy assessment of whether a p- particular ad or a piece of social media content moved the representation of women forward or backward. And obviously this is talking specifically about cis women um, because that is it is based off of the Bechdel test, which is also based on that. So it, it can be used by folks in the industry to do a better job of representation in their content and for consumers to recognize bad or harmful content with regard to cis women when they see it. So how does this ad stack up? Like, does this particular ad pass the test? Let's take a look. So, uh, and I'll say I'm doing all of this without naming names of the company or the artist because I just, it's kind of irrelevant, really. All right, item one, there is a woman. Check, there is, in fact, a woman in this ad. Two, she is presented as a capable musician. Check. All right. So in this one, the first point here is that, you know, this picture was from a user of the product who tagged the company in their personal post, which the company then reshared. So it's assumed here that the artist had control of the content she was creating. And while, you know, she isn't playing the instrument, everything is plugged in. She's wearing headphones. She has two guitars on her walls and what seems to be either Logic or GarageBand on her computer in the background seems legit to me. Presented as a capable musician. All right. Three. If she's presented with an instrument that has a traditionally feminine aesthetic, so like with uh, flowers, it's pink, has sparkles, something like that, there is a companion ad featuring a woman with an instrument that is not traditionally feminine in aesthetic. Not applicable. The synth is not pink or sparkly. Don't need to worry about that. Item four. If she's presented sexually, it is on her own terms, and there is a companion ad featuring a woman who is not presented sexually. Check. Okay, so this is where folks tend to get tripped up in representation. So for a long time, I did too, I'll be honest. Um, So many of us are trained to assume that when a woman is presented sexually, that she is automatically being objectified. Thank you, second wave feminism. That's what happens when you get stuck there. So (laughs) the key here is that the difference between sexual objectification and sexual agency or empowerment is is important. So if we automatically assume that a woman is being objectified, uh, we are also automatically assuming that she doesn't have power or control over her own image or sexuality. Is that often true, especially historically? Yes. Is it always true? No. Uh, women can prevent themselves present themselves se- sexually if they choose to do so, and it can also be a way for them to exert the, their identity and power. So we can't automatically assume if someone is not wearing a lot of clothes that they are being objectified, okay? Because that that might not be the case. But I will add, if a company is exclusively selecting images of women that are sexual in nature, uh, that is when we have a problem, right? So women of a variety of uh, identities, uh, experiences, interests, presentations should be shared, When women are expected to conform to one identity or image, that's the problem, right? So one of the first things I did after seeing the ad was to check the representation in the rest of the company's feed. 
and they had a post just the day before of a woman who was fully clothed playing on stage. Their feed included a lot of women of varying identities and presentations. Check, check, check. They did a great job. Right? Okay. Five. If she is a woman of color, she is not presented using racial stereotypes. Check. She is a woman of color, but she is not presenting using presented using stereotypes, and also she's it's it's her own picture. So there's that. All right. Six. If she's a trans woman, her identity and pronouns are respected. Uh, while I am not certain about her identity, she does not state that she is a trans woman, so uh, so not applicable. Seven. All sexual or offensive social media comments about her are promptly and appropriately addressed or screenshot deleted. Check. So there are more than 600 comments on this post. And, you know, while I would have preferred they'd gotten to them a little bit faster, you know, like I I, I think I saw this post pretty soon after it was put up. I, I had run across comments like, look at those droopers or, you know, things like that, which were later deleted. The company responded overall very diligently and clearly to pretty much all of the negative comments, which is wild. Uh, they were, you know, like educating folks about things were relevant. Uh, and that must have been a ton of work for their social media manager. And, you know, what that says to me is that they are not phoning it in like they're they're on board. Um, and that said, I don't begrudge folks for just deleting offensive comments and, and, and choosing to go that direction. That is perfectly fine. But the issue is when you don't do anything and you just like pop a picture up of a woman and like let anybody say whatever they want. That is not cool. Uh, I saw another ad from another electronics company the other day featuring a lot of like, I'm not, you know, comments. Uh, so it was a woman who looked, you know, she was standing there looking attractive. And, you know, people were like, I'm not even looking at the gear. And like, is that a Gibraltar, Gibraltar rack? Ha ha ha. Like kind of comments like that. I was just like, Ugh. all right. <laughs> they did nothing to address them. All right. No check for them. So <laughs> that's that's a problem. They're they're clearly phoning it in. All right. So so what's the verdict on this ad at hand? They passed. And that, my friends, is how a picture of a woman in a bikini top can pass the music gear Bechdel test. So if you have any thoughts or ideas about the test or about particular ads or social media, please reach out and let me know on my website, uh, hillarybjones.com, where you can find literally everything midriff related you might want. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for listening. 